This is the SFF Audio Podcast. A Thousand Deaths by Jack London, first published in Black Cat Magazine in 1899. I had been in the water about an hour, and cold, exhausted, with a terrible cramp in my right calf, it seemed as though my hour had come. Fruitlessly struggling against the strong ebb tide, I had beheld the maddening procession of the waterfront lights slip by. But now I gave up attempting to breast the stream, and contented myself with the bitter thoughts of a wasted career, now drawing to a close. It had been my luck to come of good English stock, but of parents whose accounts with the bankers far exceeded their knowledge of child nature and the rearing of children. While born with a silver spoon in my mouth, the blessed atmosphere of the home circle was to me unknown. My father, a very learned man and a celebrated antiquarian, gave no thought to his family, being constantly lost in the abstractions of his study, while my mother— noted far more for her good looks than her good sense, sated herself with the adulation of the society in which she was perpetually plunged. I went through the regular school and college routine of a boy of the English bourgeoisie, and as the years brought me increasing strength and passions, my parents suddenly became aware that I was possessed of an immortal soul and endeavored to draw the curb. But it was too late. I perpetrated the wildest and most audacious folly, and was disowned by my people, ostracized by the society I had so long outraged, and with the thousand pounds my father gave me, with the declaration that he would neither see me again nor give me more, I took a first-class passage to Australia. Since then my life had been one long peregrination, from the Orient to the Occident, from the Arctic to the Antarctic— to find myself at last, an able seaman at thirty, in the full vigor of my manhood, drowning in San Francisco Bay because of a disastrously successful attempt to desert my ship. My right leg was drawn up by the cramp, and I was suffering the keenest agony. A slight breeze stirred up a choppy sea, which washed into my mouth and down my throat, nor could I prevent it. Though I still contrived to keep afloat, it was merely mechanical, for I was rapidly becoming unconscious. I have a dim recollection of drifting past the seawall, and of catching a glimpse of an upriver steamer's starboard light. Then everything became a blank. I heard the low hum of insect life, and felt the balmy air of a spring morning fanning my cheek. Gradually it assumed a rhythmic flow, to whose soft pulsations my body seemed to respond. I floated on the gentle bosom of a summer's sea, rising and falling with dreamy pleasure on each crooning wave. But the pulsations grew stronger, the humming louder, the waves larger, fiercer. I was dashed about on a stormy sea. A great agony fastened upon me. Brilliant, intermittent sparks of light flashed athwart my inner consciousness. In my ears there was the sound of many waters, then a sudden snapping of an intangible something, and I awoke. 
The scene of which I was protagonist was a curious one. A glance sufficed to inform me that I lay on the cabin floor of some gentleman's yacht, in a most uncomfortable posture. On either side, grasping my arms and working them up and down like pump handles, were two peculiarly clad, dark-skinned creatures. Though conversant with most aboriginal types, I could not conjecture their nationality. Some attachment had been fastened about my head, which connected my respiratory organs with the machine I shall next describe. My nostrils, however, had been closed, forcing me to breathe through the mouth. For shortened by the obliquity of my line of vision, I beheld two tubes similar to small housing, but of different composition, which emerged from my mouth and went off at an acute angle from each other. The first came to an abrupt termination and lay on the floor beside me. The second traversed the floor in numerous coils, connected with the apparatus I have promised to describe. In the days before my life had become tangential, I had dabbled not a little in science, and, conversant with the appurtenances and general paraphernalia of the laboratory, I appreciated the machine I now beheld. It was composed chiefly of glass, the construction being of that crude sort which is employed for experimentative purposes. A vessel of water was surrounded by an air chamber, to which was fixed a vertical tube surmounted by a globe. In the center of this was a vacuum gauge. The water in the tube moved upward and downward, creating alternate inhalations and exhalations, which were in turn communicated to me through the hose. With this, and the aid of the men who pumped my arms so vigorously, had the process of breathing been artificially carried on, my chest rising and falling and my lungs expanding and contracting, till nature could be persuaded to again take up her wonted labor. As I opened my eyes, the appliance about my head, nostrils, and mouth was removed. Draining a stiff three fingers of brandy, I staggered to my feet to thank my preserver and confronted my father. But long years of fellowship with danger had taught me self-control, and I waited to see if he would recognize me. Not so. He saw in me no more than a runaway sailor, and treated me accordingly. Leaving me to the care of the blackies, he fell to revising the notes he had made on my resuscitation. As I ate of the handsome fare served up to me, confusion began on deck, and from the chanties of the sailors and the rattling of blocks and tackles, I surmised that we were getting under way. What a lark! Off on a cruise with my recluse father into the wide Pacific! Little did I realize, as I laughed to myself, which side the joke was to be on. Aye, had I known, I would have plunged overboard and welcomed the dirty foxhole from which I had just escaped. I was not allowed on deck till we had sunk the Farallones and the last pilot boat. I appreciated this forethought on the part of my father, and made it a point to thank him heartily in my bluff seaman's manner. I could not suspect that he had his own ends in view, and thus keeping my presence secret to all save the crew. 
He told me briefly of my rescue by his sailors, assuring me that the obligation was on his side, as my appearance had been most opportune. He had constructed the apparatus for the vindication of a theory concerning certain biological phenomena, and had been waiting for an opportunity to use it. "'You have proved it beyond all doubt,' he said, then added with a sigh, "'but only in the small matter of drowning.' But, to take a reef in my yarn, he offered me an advance of two pounds on my previous wages to sail with him, and this I considered handsome, for he really did not need me. Contrary to my expectations, I did not join the sailor's mess forward, being assigned to a comfortable stateroom and eating at the captain's table. He had perceived that I was no common sailor, and I resolved to take this chance for reinstating myself in his good graces. I wove a fictitious past to account for my education and present position, and did my best to come in touch with him. I was not long in disclosing a predilection for scientific pursuits, nor he in appreciating my aptitude. I became his assistant, with a corresponding increase in wages, and before long, as he grew confidential and expounded his theories, I was as enthusiastic as himself. The days flew quickly by, for I was deeply interested in my new studies, passing my waking hours in his well-stocked library, or listening to his plans and aiding him in his laboratory work but we were forced to forego many enticing experiments, a rolling ship not being exactly the proper place for delicate or intricate work. He promised me, however, many delightful hours in the magnificent laboratory for which we were bound. He had taken possession of an uncharted South Sea island, as he said, and turned it into a scientific paradise. We had not been on the island long, before I discovered the horrible mare's nest I had fallen into. But before I describe the strange things which came to pass, I must briefly outline the causes which culminated in as startling an experience as ever fell to the lot of man. Late in life, my father had abandoned the musty charms of antiquity and succumbed to the more fascinating ones embraced under the general head of biology. Having been thoroughly grounded during his youth in the fundamentals, he rapidly explored all the higher branches as far as the scientific world had gone and found himself on the no-man's land of the unknowable. It was his intention to preempt some of this unclaimed territory, and it was at this stage of his investigations that we had been thrown together. Having a good brain, though I say it myself, I had mastered his speculations and methods of reasoning, becoming almost as mad as himself. But I should not say this. The marvelous results we afterwards obtained can only go to prove his sanity. I can but say that he was the most abnormal specimen of cold-blooded cruelty I have ever seen. After having penetrated the dual mysteries of physiology and psychology, his thought had led him to the verge of a great field, for which, the better to explore, he began studies in higher organic chemistry, pathology, toxicology, and other sciences and sub-sciences rendered kindred as accessories to his speculative hypotheses. 
Starting from the proposition that the direct cause of the temporary and permanent arrest of vitality was due to the coagulation of certain elements and compounds in the protoplasm, he had isolated and subjected these various substances to innumerable experiments. Since the temporary arrest of vitality in an organism brought coma, and a permanent arrest death, he held that, by artificial means, this coagulation of the protoplasm could be retarded, prevented, and even overcome in the extreme states of solidification. Or, to do away with the technical nomenclature, he argued that death, when not violent and in which none of the organs had suffered injury, was merely suspended vitality, and that, in such instances, life could be induced to resume its functions by the use of proper methods. This, then, was his idea, to discover the method, and by practical experimentation prove the possibility, of renewing vitality in a structure from which life had seemingly fled. Of course, he recognized the futility of such endeavor after decomposition had set in. He must have organisms which, but the moment, the hour, or the day before, had been quick with life. With me, in a crude way, he had proved this theory. I was really drowned, really dead, when picked from the water of San Francisco Bay, but the vital spark had been renewed by means of his aerotherapeutical apparatus, as he called it. Now to his dark purpose concerning me. He first showed me how completely I was in his power. He had sent the yacht away for a year, retaining only his two blackies who were utterly devoted to him. He then made an exhaustive review of his theory, and outlined the method of proof he had adopted, concluding with the startling announcement that I was to be his subject. I had faced death and weighed my chances in many a desperate venture, but never in one of this nature. I can swear I am no coward, yet this proposition of journeying back and forth across the borderland of death put the yellow fear upon me. I asked for time, which he granted, at the same time assuring me that but one course was open. I must submit. Escape from the island was out of the question. Escape by suicide was not to be entertained, though really preferable to what it seemed I must undergo. My only hope was to destroy my captors. But this latter was frustrated through the precautions taken by my father. I was subjected to a constant surveillance, even in my sleep being guarded by one or the other of the blacks. Having pleaded in vain, I announced and proved that I was his son. It was my last card, and I had placed all my hopes upon it. But he was inexorable. He was not a father, but a scientific machine. I wonder yet how it ever came to pass that he married my mother or begat me, for there was not the slightest grain of emotion in his make-up. Reason was all in all to him. Nor could he understand such things as love or sympathy in others, except as petty weaknesses which should be overcome. So he informed me that in the beginning he had given me life, and who had better right to take it away than he. Such, he said, was not his desire, however. He merely wished to borrow it occasionally, promising to return it punctually at the appointed time.
Of course, there was a liability of mishaps, but I could do no more than take the chances, since the affairs of men were full of such. The better to ensure success, he wished me to be in the best possible condition, so I was dieted and trained like a great athlete before a decisive contest. What could I do? If I had to undergo the peril, it were best to be in good shape. In my intervals of relaxation, he allowed me to assist in the arranging of the apparatus and in the various subsidiary experiments. The interest I took in all such operations can be imagined. I mastered the work as thoroughly as he, and often had the pleasure of seeing some of my suggestions or alterations put into effect. After such events, I would smile grimly, conscious of officiating at my own funeral. He began by inaugurating a series of experiments in toxicology. When all was ready, I was killed by a stiff dose of strychnine and allowed to lie dead for some twenty hours. During that period, my body was dead, absolutely dead. All respiration and circulation ceased, but the frightful part of it was that while the protoplasmic coagulation proceeded, I retained consciousness and was enabled to study it in all its ghastly details. The apparatus to bring me back to life was an airtight chamber, fitted to receive my body. The mechanism was simple. A few valves, a rotary shaft and crank, and an electric motor. When in operation, the interior atmosphere was alternately condensed and rarefied, thus communicating to my lungs an artificial respiration, without the agency of the hosing previously used. Though my body was inert, and, for all I knew, in the first stages of decomposition, I was cognizant of everything that transpired. I knew when they placed me in the chamber, and though all my senses were quiescent, I was aware of hypodermic injections of a compound to react upon the coagulatory process. Then the chamber was closed and the machinery started. My anxiety was terrible, but the circulation became gradually restored, the different organs began to carry on their respective functions, and in an hour's time I was eating a hearty dinner. It cannot be said that I participated in this series, nor in the subsequent ones with much verve but after two ineffectual attempts at escape, I began to take quite an interest. Besides, I was becoming accustomed. My father was beside himself at his success, and as the months rolled by, his speculations took wilder and yet wilder flights. We ranged through the three great classes of poisons, the neurotics, the gaseous, and the irritants but carefully avoided some of the mineral irritants and passed the whole group of corrosives. During the poison regime I became quite accustomed to dying, and had but one mishap to shake my growing confidence. Scarifying a number of lesser blood vessels in my arm, he introduced a minute quantity of that most frightful of poisons, the arrow poison or curare. 
I lost consciousness at the start, quickly followed by the cessation of respiration and circulation, and so far had the solidification of the protoplasm advanced that he gave up all hope. But at the last moment he applied a discovery he had been working upon, receiving such encouragement as to redouble his efforts. In a glass vacuum, similar but not exactly like a crook's tube, was placed a magnetic field. When penetrated by polarized light, it gave no phenomena of phosphorescence nor of rectilinear projection of atoms, but emitted non-luminous rays similar to an X-ray. While the X-ray could reveal opaque objects hidden in dense mediums, this was possessed of far subtler penetration. By this, he photographed my body, and found on the negative an infinite number of blurred shadows, due to the chemical and electric motion still going on. This was an infallible proof that the rigor mortis in which I lay was not genuine. That is, those mysterious forces, those delicate bonds which held my soul to my body, were still in action. The resultants of all other poisons were unapparent, save those of mercurial compounds which usually left me languid for several days. Another series of delightful experiments was with electricity. We verified Tesla's assertion that high currents were utterly harmless by passing 100,000 volts through my body. As this did not affect me, the current was reduced to 2,500, and I was quickly electrocuted. This time he ventured so far as to allow me to remain dead, or in a state of suspended vitality, for three days. It took four hours to bring me back. Once he superinduced lockjaw, but the agony of dying was so great that I positively refused to undergo similar experiments. The easiest deaths were by asphyxiation, such as drowning, strangling, and suffocation by gas, while those by morphine, opium, cocaine, and chloroform were not at all hard. Another time, after being suffocated, he kept me in cold storage for three months, not permitting me to freeze or decay. This was without my knowledge, and I was in a great fright on discovering the lapse of time. I became afraid of what he might do with me when I lay dead, my alarm being increased by the predilection he was beginning to betray toward vivisection. The last time I was resurrected, I discovered that he had been tampering with my breast. Though he had carefully dressed and sewed the incisions up, they were so severe that I had to take to my bed for some time. It was during this convalescence that I evolved the plan by which I ultimately escaped. While feigning unbounded enthusiasm in the work, I asked and received a vacation from my moribund occupation. During this period, I devoted myself to laboratory work, while he was too deep in the vivisection of the many animals captured by the blacks to take notice of my work. It was on these two propositions that I constructed my theory. First, 
electrolysis, or the decomposition of water into its constituent gases by means of electricity, and second, by the hypothetical existence of a force, the converse of gravitation, which Astor has named apergy. Terrestrial attraction, for instance, merely draws objects together, but does not combine them. Hence, apergy is merely repulsion. Now, atomic or molecular attraction not only draws objects together, but integrates them. And it was the converse of this, or a disintegrative force, which I wished to not only discover and produce, but to direct at will. Thus, the molecules of hydrogen and oxygen reacting on each other separate and create new molecules containing both elements and forming water. Electrolysis causes these molecules to split up and resume their original condition, producing the two gases separately. The force I wish to find must not only do this with two, but with all elements, no matter in what compounds they exist. If I could then entice my father within its radius, he would be instantly disintegrated and sent flying to the four corners, a mass of isolated elements. It must not be understood that this force, which I finally came to control, annihilated matter. It merely annihilated form. Nor, as I soon discovered, had it any effect on inorganic structure, but to all organic form it was absolutely fatal. This partiality puzzled me at first, though had I stopped to think deeper I would have seen through it. Since the number of atoms in organic molecules is far greater than in the most complex mineral molecules, organic compounds are characterized by their instability and the ease with which they are split up by physical forces and chemical reagents. By two powerful batteries, connected with magnets constructed specially for this purpose, two tremendous forces were projected. Considered apart from each other, they were perfectly harmless, but they accomplished their purpose by focusing at an invisible point in mid-air. After practically demonstrating its success, besides narrowly escaping being blown into nothingness, I laid my trap. Concealing the magnets so that their force made the whole space of my chamber doorway a field of death, and placing by my couch a button by which I could throw on the current from the storage batteries, I climbed into bed. The blackies still guarded my sleeping quarters, one relieving the other at midnight. I turned on the current as soon as the first man arrived. Hardly had I begun to doze when I was aroused by a sharp metallic tinkle. There on the mid-threshold lay the collar of Dan, my father's St. Bernard. My keeper ran to pick it up. He disappeared like a gust of wind, his clothes falling to the floor in a heap. There was a slight whiff of ozone in the air, but since the principal gaseous components of his body were hydrogen, oxygen, and nitrogen, which are equally colorless and odorless, there was no other manifestation of his departure. Yet, when I shut off the current and removed the garments, I found a deposit of carbon in the form of animal charcoal, 
also other powders, the isolated solid elements of his organism, such as sulfur, potassium, and iron. Resetting the trap, I crawled back to bed. At midnight, I got up and removed the remains of the second blackie, and then slept peacefully till morning. I was awakened by the strident voice of my father, who was calling to me from across the laboratory. I laughed to myself. There had been no one to call him, and he had overslept. I could hear him as he approached my room with the intention of rousing me, and so I sat up in bed, the better to observe his translation. Uh, perhaps apotheosis were a better term. He paused a moment at the threshold, then took the fatal step. Puff! It was like the wind sighing among the pines. He was gone. His clothes fell in a fantastic heap on the floor. Besides ozone, I noticed the faint garlic-like odor of phosphorus. A little pile of elementary solids lay among his garments. That was all. The wide world lay before me. My captors were not. Written by Jack London. Read by Julie Hoverson. Hi, I'm Jesse. I'm Tamahome. I'm Jenny. I'm Julie. And I'm Matt. Hello. Hi. That's that's Julie Hoverson, oh, the narrator. Gosh, yeah. The narrator of the story we we just heard, which is called A Thousand Deaths, uh, Jack London's first published for money story and that's matthew sanborn smith from the fear beware of a hairy mango beware of the hairy mango beware the hairy mango that's right <laughs> the hershey uh, fruit the hershey hey that's my line <laughs> oh damn it all right Sorry. um so i really like this story i sent it to julie a long time ago and uh she decided to record it i thought that was really cool. Uh, I was complaining about the LibriVox version being narrated by someone with a thick Italian accent. Um, and the story is already confusing enough as it is. But uh, that person was a, a female narrator. This one is a female narrator. And I thought, oh, that's inappropriate. And then I was listening to the story again. And I thought, wait a second, maybe it's not. How do I know that the gender of the main character is male? Uh, because, sorry. Yeah. He What's says the he's answer? a boy. He says all sorts of things like he's a boy, like, I'm a seaman. I, I have the skills of a seaman. He says, mm -hmm. uh, I am your son <laughs> at one point. And that was the, <laughs> yeah, they have sort of the boys. clincher. But um, I went through the regular school and routines of a boy. of the Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, so unless he's really crazy, uh, he's probably male. <laughs> but the, I think the, the only thing that we, the, the fact that I had to question it came from a combination of the fact that it's it's always narrated by females um, and a combination of the fact that the story makes so many coincidences and so many weird things going on. I, I just throw my hands up in the air and say, I don't know what's real. Yeah. <laughs> Although so, he, he also does say, in the full vigor of my manhood. <laughs> right, right. But I, maybe that's humanhood. I don't know. <laughs> I think you're well, stretching. I you know. At, if you look at the time period, it's very unlikely that a woman would be able to go to sea without somebody noticing. Yeah. It, 
I know one of the experiments was changing his sex. <laughs> Strange one. But yeah, okay, setting that aside. Um, what 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 is your reaction? Uh, I know um Julie was stricken enough to record it. There's no, like, Irish waiting. setter in the woods or anything. It's a pretty strange Jack London story. Yeah, where are the wolves? <laughs> oh, there's a dog. There's a dog. He gets, he gets oh, vaporized. Right. Dan, I think his name was. Daniel. Or Dan. He was, a, he was a, what's that rescue dog called? You know, the mountain dog. St. Bernard? St. Bernard. He was a St. Bernard. <laughs> we just find his collar. Aw. <laughs> I actually have a question about... Yeah. Because, you know, the whole reason he gets sent away, that's what I don't understand. It says that his parents became suddenly aware that he was possessed of an immortal soul uh-huh. and tried to draw the curb. But it was too late because he had perpetuated the wildest and most audacious folly. <laughs> yeah. what, what, what did generally <laughs> what that means, he's he was... He was out partying all the time, and his parents suddenly decided they wanted to reform him. You know, he's got an immortal soul. We have to, we have to bring him back to goodness. And he was like, eh, no. Yeah, but yeah. his father is not much of a person, and his mother's not much of a person. So, uh, it it's it almost seems like a euphemism, right? Mm, probably. For for something, I mean, I think I know the source of where this the story was inspired from. Um, and I think that it, it's it, the trend with early Jack London stories to see, you know, he's he's inspired by another story, and he just goes off and does his own thing with it. Uh, on the Wikipedia entry, it says it's a Freudian story, and I, it certainly has those elements. That's arguable. I think there's other reasons for it being apparent, but um, that's yeah. So Everything's Freudian if you want to find it. Hmm. What do you think it's inspired by? Uh, the Island of Dr. Moreau. Oh, okay. Just because... Uh, I, I had that in my head uh, at one point in the story. Yeah, it's not wholly inspired by it, but uh, the the fact that there's a, a dude on an island doing vivisections, uh, and he's got a yacht and tons of money, and he has these weird, weird servants that nobody can identify their... The racial origin from uh, turns out they're dogs or cats or whatever it is, <laughs> um, and and you know he's doing hideous experiments on a South Seas island. Uh, that sounds like the island of Doctor Moreau. Yeah. Except for this is quite a bit more horrific, considering that he's his son and telling him that yeah. he's his son makes no difference to him. <laughs> yeah, it's true. He's a he's oh. A scientist, not a father, right? And he's not a scientist who cares about anything except for discovering new stuff, which is the same thing as Moreau, except the the main character who tells the story in the Island of Doctor Moreau is not the son of the of the of the dude. I, I don't even know what the 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 son stuff adds to the story mm-hmm. other than making it really strange. That's one reason I don't think of it as being a, a Freudian story, because there isn't any it doesn't bear any relation to the content of the story necessarily, except for to make the doctor look that much more creepy. Mm-hmm. Well, he, killed, he, he, he ends up killing his own father, right? So that, yeah. uh, but no. he doesn't replace his mother exactly. Well, no, but he kills his father after his father's killed him. 
a few million times. <laughs> a thousand times. Well, we just, yes. be, let's be accurate. A thousand times. <laughs> well, he didn't I even get even. I'm being exaggerated. But know that it's 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 not Oedipal in that way, then. And it's not really... I mean, yeah, it just doesn't fit any of those... It's, it's Freudian in the sense that there's a father... Yeah. <laughs> then, then everything would be Freudian. So. Yeah, I, I'm, but it is. I, I, I think that I think literature, especially, can be Freudian, especially after Freud. Uh, mm-hmm. People say, "Oh, that's that's interesting. I'm gonna put that in my story." People do that, I think. But and sometimes the cigar is just a banana. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. I think I think uh, people they read Freud and they read a story. Uh, and then they say, I'm going to put that in my story, rather than Freud was saying, we put it in unconsciously. Mm-hmm. I think people consciously put it in. I don't know that he did that. But what I can tell you uh, about this story is that this story parallels uh, London's own life rather closely, at least in the, the non-science fiction elements. <laughs> you know, he, he, his his uh, birth father abandoned him. Um, his uh, he went on many sea voyages around the world, um, and uh, he did live a kind of a party lifestyle in a certain sense. So, uh, I, I and you know I assume he had some negative feelings towards his original father because he adopted the the name of his stepfather, his mm. last name. So, but was his mother a vapid social climber? She was definitely vapid. She was a believer in all sorts of spiritualist junk. and That was very popular all, at the time. Uh, wasted tons of money. Took all, <laughs> all the money and spent it on horrible business projects. All collapsed. That's interesting because some of that is very similar to Lovecraft. And hmm. look who could be more different from Lovecraft than Jack London. Hmm. They're they're not they're both Americans, but other than that, there's only connection I saw in this story was it's it's a reanimation story. That's right? true. It's uh, the style was kind of like Lovecraft too, like the uh, archaic language. The yeah, you yeah. haven't mentioned as an inspiration, of course, would be Frankenstein. Hmm. Certainly, but the reanimation concept, and I mean because. There you've got the, the the idea of bringing back recently deceased flesh mm-hmm. and consciousness, and, uh, and there's another source for archaic language too. Mm-hmm. Now Lovecraft never graduated from the archaic language, but Jack <laughs> actually became very very modern as a writer. Yeah, he's. I mean, if you if you. Look at the way that this sailor talks. He doesn't talk like normal sailors, right? He makes everything as florid as possible. He was raised as a rich schoolboy in England. <laughs> he, he could talk like a... I th- yeah, it's an He's a well-educated thing. sailor. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and he's uh, with an interest in science, right? Yeah. The, uh, sorry. I'm sorry. Well, I was just going to say when uh, when I listened to this story, I thought, "Geez, this must be like a really early story because the style is so kind of uh, I don't know. It's it's a little bit flowery. It's kind of mm, a little obtuse. bit. But um, you know, then I I, I checked uh, Wikipedia and Call of the Wild was written just like three years after this. So I I, I think he did this on purpose. Uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely a a story in which 
you know, you can see the language has been, you know, gone over with a thesaurus. It, it just, it just why, feels that way. Why use one word when five will do? <laughs> or <laughs> why be specific uh, uh, when you can uh, obfuscate all your meaning? Well, because peregrinating is so much more interesting than taking a walk. <laughs> Technically, it's not true. He's, he's not peregrinating, right? He's, he's traveling by sea. Hmm. One thing that m- might actually very much excuse what the way the writing is, is he was trying to write a British character. And, hmm. you know, the American perception of Brits has always been, well, until recently when it's mostly involves, you know, Amy Winehouse, um, that, that, that they're, they're very, very educated and overly, you know, smarty pantsy. <laughs> <laughs> It's possible. I, I, I think that there's a, uh, a layer that's been put over it, and I think you could actually translate this for down to you know normal English and not lose most of it or even make it any, any longer. But um, setting aside the, the way the story is told, uh, you know, sentence by sentence, it starts with a guy dying in the sea. Mm-hmm. He's dead in the sea after having jumped overboard on a ship uh, he's deserting from and he's he's got a, a cramp in his leg so he, he drowns um, that's that's an unusual way to start a story and and then the coincidence of immediately finding being picked up on a ship by his own father it it made me th- start thinking okay he's dead he's this whole is a dead story right he's he comes back to life and then he dies a thousand times. And then later on, when he's describing the experiences of being uh, suspended or dead again, mm-hmm. many of the other times, he says, oh, I was conscious during the, the death. And my, I could feel my body unable uh, to move and it was terrible. And I was thinking, it, it, this is a story about death. But I'm not sure what to make of it other than what I just said. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I was thinking about? I, you know, he's driving around on this boat, (laughs) picking people out of the sea to do experiments on them, which is interesting. But um, where are all the other people? Because don't you think he would have experimented on others? And where's his laboratory? And (laughs) I have these questions about Mm -hmm. where, where his father came from. You know, if he's if this isn't all a dream, yeah. It, well, I think it. The way I read it was, it's the the finding of a drowned sailor was sort of the floodgate for the father. It's mm-hmm. like, oh look, he's already dead. I can finally try this experiment. Whoo, it worked. Well, yeah. you know, he would be dead if it weren't for me. So he owes me. I'm gonna do it again. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, because you may not have the guts to actually go kill somebody and get a fresh fresh right there still warm corpse which presumably would you know aid the resuscitation process quite a bunch mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to you know three day old you know uh, well look we're going to raise the turkey before dinner <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a scene from the reanimator movie actually I, or poultry geist I don't know <laughs> so um, is that a real movie? Poultrygeist, uh, yes. Poultrygeist, <laughs> yes. Really? 
It's from Poltergeist, the same, I know. No, Poltergeist is from the, the um, same people who did Toxic Avenger. Oh, my. Oh. Yeah. I'll add it to so, my queue. <laughs> Thanksgiving movie. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a chicken, though. Ah. Uh. Yeah. Um, because <laughs> that makes so much of a difference. It's smaller budget. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I mean, that. so in a way that's the catalyst event is not only the catalyst for him of having his life saved, but also the catalyst of sort of giving this doctor the permission to do this. Because even if we, he comes off as an amoral scumbag, which he really does, I mean, actually mm-hmm. they both do, but yeah, I, I don't, uh, he's our hero's not that great a hero. No, you don't really have a lot of sympathy for him. I mean, the, the one person we have sympathy for in the whole story, I think, is the dog. And <laughs> he's only in the one death scene too. So. <laughs> I know, but oh, it's like Scooby Doo coming through the door in his little collar. <laughs> yeah, but um, but the thing is that it's. It's that moment of, you know, there's there's so many times in history when real science, when somebody found somebody that they, they could get away with experimenting on, like the dude with the hole in his stomach. And they're like testing out stomach acid by putting stuff in and pulling it out. and But, you know, <laughs> okay, that's probably... No, fin- Phineas Gage is a good example of that, yeah. Where they, that's the dude who, he was working on the railroad when... Uh, the iron bar he was using to tamp in some explosives shot through his head. And we we started learning all sorts of things about how the brain and the mind are connected. Um, Well, in 1899, it's definitely when there's a big focus on invention and discovery and possibility. So it makes sense in that context. And I I would... I can't believe we haven't mentioned it earlier, but the the most obvious one is that um, people who were drowned were resuscitated, uh, especially, you know, sailors know about this. You, know, you get in the sea, you're in there too long, uh, you appear dead, and uh, some judicious uh, mouth-to-mouth uh, pumping of the arms back and forth <laughs> seems to revive people. And, I mean, that's that's clearly an inspiration for the for the for all the experiments and and uh, that that was a theme that, you know, that whole lifeboat movement, the whole uh, saving people movement, <laughs> they had all sorts of theories as to how you could bring people back to life. One point they they thought uh, you could pump, literally pump smoke up people's anuses <laughs> to help them revive. Um, and they had all these machines uh, set up on the beaches to help drown sailors. And uh, passengers, on. <laughs> it's literally true. But I you have know, to wonder but... what inspired that idea. I, uh, I, I don't know. Is that something just... you see in nature? He, he's faking. <laughs> he's faking. Let's pull his pants down. Oh, he's up. He's up. But <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't know CPR back then. <laughs> I suppose that if you were faking and somebody threatened to do that, <laughs> that right. would actually yeah, that would get you. Up. Hey, <laughs> I like the artificial respirator. Yeah, um, yeah. When yeah, when cool. we got to that point, I I thought this was going to be a, a different sort of science fiction story, a more engineering focused story. But then it, it is, you know, it is. I, I, I don't it know about that. Builds a disintegration door. Yeah, <laughs> the disintegration. I, I Did anybody say, else think of Doctor Manhattan? <laughs> you know what I thought of was 
was I'm playing Fallout New Vegas, and I, I when I played Fallout Three, it was they had the same thing. You have a disintegration gun, and every once in a while, other people will have been disintegrated. And there's just like an ash pile uh, <laughs> where the body was, and you can go down there and open it up, and all the you know clothing is still there, all the equipment's still there. It's just all the flesh in the exact same way has been destroyed, um, and. Yeah, ultimately, that is the way of death, right? Is the only way to ensure the guy's really, really, really dead is <laughs> to make him not have any body parts connected to any other body parts anymore. Well, right. I, I, um, I love the description of the of the ray of the mm-hmm. whatever it is, because I mean we all take disintegration ray for granted, and how many people really think of what that means, what the words mean? Mm-hmm. You know, you're just like, oh, you disintegrate it. Well, no, you disintegrate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and his description uh, is lovely. And I'm wondering, is that the first invention or description of a disintegration ray? It's not a ray, but yeah. Well, uh, but you know what I mean? I mean of, of a disintegration. Yeah, it, it's a disintegrator. In, yeah. it, it's very clear. Like he says, you know, there's uh, it's basically called an anti-gravity, right? He has a, a special word for it he's, he's using most of the time, but he says the opposite of gravity. That's anti-gravity. The things that hold things together. It's, it's, so it's not super scientific, but it's 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 a but the scientific. concept of, uh, well, he's using it, uh, what's the other thing he's talking about? Electrolysis? Um, yeah. Because you know, obviously that was a science that had been ex- you know invented and he extrapolated it from breaking up ions or by most for words, breaking up uh, those in, in in water and then just breaking up all the connecting bonds in everything. Right. And breaking breaking molecules into their constituent atoms. Molecules, that's it. Right. <laughs> yeah. But you, you know what uh, struck me is that apparently in 1899, these guys were all wearing synthetic clothing, uh, because, <laughs> which yeah. is kind of odd, because their clothes stayed. Is, yeah. You know? You think they oh, yeah. had cotton or something? Hmm. It was sure. only it was only animal matter that was supposed to be injured or something, but only living matter, I suppose. Yeah. He said animal charcoal, and I was thinking <clears throat> charcoal. Do we make animal charcoal? I think it just means like charred charred uh, meat. You know, <laughs> I guess that's animal charcoal. Mm-hmm. Right, because he just <laughs> scraped it off the collar of the shirts, right? <laughs> or the dog collar, yeah. Yeah. Well, you don't want to disintegrate all their clothes. What are you going to wear later? <laughs> Laundry day. I uh, I posted uh, earlier this year, I posted a, a story uh, also by Wells that's very similar and also very parallel to the to the um, the Moreau, this story. Well, there's uh, the Invisible Man and another Invisible Man story done in very much the same way, except with two Invisible Men. Hmm. And it's like, I think Wells is, it's you know, it's the uh, late 19th century, very early 20th century. Wells is reading all these, uh, sorry, London's reading Wells and saying, that's cool, I'm going to write that. And he just takes the, uh, the idea and then just sort, sort of does it again in a short story mode instead of a uh, novella. There was a quote from London on his Wikipedia page saying basically he can't come up with any ideas, but he can write well once he has one. So he mm. would just blatantly take ideas from people. Yeah. Huh. Oh, that seems that seems like what's going on. And 
uh, I just I, I think it's really cool that uh, I'm finding these these old uh, early stories by London that you know everybody thinks of him as the guy who wrote about dogs and wolves and stuff boats and boats and guys who uh, who uh, are really mean on boats <laughs> <laughs> I like his Polynesian stories I hear I mean I, I'm I there's one of them that I'm particularly fond of but yeah I tried to read that one and ended up reading a different one that was interesting as well. <laughs> Yeah, I want to know what the heck was going on in that first boat that made him jump off. Where uh, you know he didn't like jump in the water from the island. You know how much worse was that first boat? Yeah, <laughs> indeed. You know uh, the islands, the Farallones, uh, where they where he says I after we sank the Farallones. I thought that oh, does he mean you didn't sink the Farallones? He means they went off the horizon so that you can see them anymore. They're, those are islands off the coast of. Um, of San Francisco Bay. Um, and, y- you know, you'd think, okay, you're in San Francisco. Why don't you just not get on that boat? Yeah, there, well, they also, there's, I mean, and also because he'd been uh, already at sea for quite some time, he already obviously had some experience. He wasn't just like, you know, <laughs> I'm walking along. Oh, now I'm a sailor, you know. Yeah. But, um, well, I mean, there's there was still press ganging, I assume, or something going on. It's it, he 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 probably had, you know, signed up, got his money, and then bailed off the boat. It's like, hey, I didn't sign on to go to, you know, I was we were supposed to go to Jamaica. I don't want to go to <laughs> the Bali. It's a long way. I don't know. There's always something. Maybe the captain thought he was cute. <laughs> I, I, I think that's know. the second the problem he has on the second ship too <laughs> um, at one point uh, the doctor has uh, I mean there is a bit of section is even mentioned in this uh, that's what Island of Dr. Moreau is mostly about you know you take animals and you cut them up while they're alive and look and see how they work um, at one point uh, while he's been in, put into suspended animation uh, by some method um, he wakes up to find that his chest has been tampered with. And, oh, it's all been sewn back up, but I'm going to have to rest for a while. Like, that is uh, <laughs> kind of invasive. Yeah. <laughs> is, it, is it a big Y incision? <laughs> yeah, I would assume so. Um, it, it, there, is, there is something to this story, though, I think, about... Uh, I mean, it's called A Thousand Deaths, and, you know... The thing is, is some of those deaths are, you know, approaching deaths. So uh, I think drowning is one of those cases where we think somebody's dead before they're dead um, because they're they're not breathing and their heart may may have stopped, but they're not dead. Um, and the damage that can be done by not breathing and not having your blood moving around. Uh, it's it's pretty bad, but uh, it takes a few minutes uh, to be irreversible or something like that. Whereas um, he's getting poisoned in many of these cases. I don't think that that's just the same thing as uh, having a lack of oxygen for a few minutes. I think that 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 those are damaging individual cells, and and so this I think the story is trying to explore in a certain way what po- it's possible to know when somebody's dead. You know, in the 19th century, Poe was writing about premature burial and all sorts of stories in which uh, people 
die and aren't dead. They're in a state of suspended animation for a long period of time, uh, you know, buried alive, that sort of thing. But when you're completely disintegrated, (laughs) we know you're dead, right? We know you're pretty much dead then. Other than that, uh, how can we be sure? Doctors still today are not doing a, you know, we we know he's dead because he stinks and he's all bones. Uh, (laughs) But even then, we're still afraid of zombies. (laughs) (laughs) You know, back in the the 1800s, there's a... Coffin bells were very popular mm-hmm. because people were afraid of being buried uh, prematurely. And so they'd have a string that came down into the coffin up to a bell tower above the grave. So if they did wake up, they could ring it and somebody would come and dig them up. Yeah, I think a lot more of those were sold than probably ended up being used. I wonder if that ever worked <laughs> for anybody. It's, yeah. just like, it's just like insurance. Every time, you know, a meteor hits somebody's house, I'll bet the insurance guys <laughs> clean up selling meteor hits your house insurance. <laughs> Don't worry, the insurance guys always clean up. <laughs> <laughs> That is, they, they do well for themselves. Maybe they don't always clean up, technically clean <laughs> up the mess. <laughs> yeah, they, they make the money. Yeah. It's funny, though, because I, I do think this story is lacking in zombies. Because <laughs> when you're talking about reanimation, it's kind of a logical progression. Yeah. Maybe there are other boats out there, you know, <laughs> well. left over from his prior experiments. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I get the feeling that this is his. I just get the idea that this is the doctor's or the father's first time bringing somebody back, and that's why he does it over and over again because it worked once with you. It might not work with somebody else. He's he's trying to. He's uh, he is doing real science. Um, He 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 might not be doing it in a very open, uh, you know, uh, peer-reviewed way. (laughs) But he is he's doing he's doing very good science work. It's just the volunteer is not particularly uh, volunteering. Yeah. Well, and let's face it, I don't think anyone would choose to do experimentation on a boat. It's got to be well, some complexity they, no, they're there. They're on the island. They're <laughs> on the island for most of it. They get to the island for the, for the most part. And the device he uses, uh, you know, he, he uses them once. But I think that there's a good justification in there that's actually kind of fun. The the After he says, I'm going to experiment on you, um, he says, okay, 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 I'm your son. He says, uh-huh, okay, so who has a better right to kill you than the person who brought you into this world? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, you know, that's a kind of an argument. <laughs> I brought I you in, and I can take you back out. That's right. <laughs> Wasn't it, was it Bill Cosby who used to, in his routine, yeah. say, you know, I, I made you, I can make another one just like you. <laughs> no, the, um, yeah. Well, I mean, there was a certain amount of childless property, even though he's an adult now. But, you know, did concept back in the day. I mean, it still is, even though most children think that they own everything. And, um, but, yeah. Um, you know, you're also looking at a time when uh, nobody really had, you know, especially when you're on a boat and then on an island. It's not like you can, like, call up. Uh, Amnesty International. <laughs> <laughs> no, he sent the yacht away for the year, right? That and that is very much like uh, Moreau. There, there's so many parallels to Island of Dr. Moreau that uh, it's it's obviously inspired by it. I think. I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, well, like you said, London wasn't 
necessarily terribly original. What really sets Lennon apart in his later stories, not so much in this one, is his writing style for me. Absolutely. He is a great he is a great prose stylist, I think. Once he once he reached his voice as they say, you know, his, yeah. his writing style, this is not in his no. standard voice. This is so unusual for him. I mean, especially because he's writing from the viewpoint of an English character, which I don't think he did very often because he's like the the prototypical He-Man American writer um, from the time. Oh. And he he becomes this writer, which is he, his stories are action, 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 action that make it so that they're they're exciting even to a reader of today they really get on with it that's what i mean it, this story does that too I, even even though the language is so flowery and florid the the fact that he, you know there's a ton happening in a short period a short space if you read his later uh you know no, novels they are not i, I don't want to say action action it's not action oriented mm-hmm. as much as it's Things are moving along, and there's development, and it's really pushing in a direction. Not that you feel like you're being dragged that way, but it—he's he, an amazing writer. I'm very I, pleased to be reading more of him. What I mean by action is his his language itself is action based. I mean his his sentences are to the point. His, mm. his he's very verb. Heavy. I mean, I, I haven't done a study or anything, but when you read his stuff, it feels vibrant. It's happening. It's not just Absolutely. a bunch of language describing something happening. That's true. This is sort of the, the exception in this case. But you know, uh, he even even in this story where there's very little about social class and such, I think there's a couple of lines that were you know, oh, that's the the socialist in him. Like the, he's talking about bourgeoisie and oh yeah. Uh, and I think there was a couple of uh, you know dings at 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 the aristocracy. Um, he he's a uh, he's a raging socialist in the time when when uh, most writers were not from the class that he came from. He's from the the really poor dude class, and most of the writers are the people who do it as their hobby because they don't have a regular job, or if they do, it's it's uh, because you know they 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 can do it on the side. Mm. It seems to me, anyways. He's he's just he writes differently uh, than even Wells does, and Wells certainly didn't come from the highest class. But it's 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 just it's nice to see somebody. Uh, I, I, he really brings attitude to everything he writes. Maybe I've talked too much about this story. What what do you guys think? Is this uh, early, forgotten, good science fiction, or just interesting? I would say interesting. Uh, my biggest problem with it is that uh, he would be really suffering and going through some pretty traumatic experiences when he's taking all these poisons. And except for, like, um, Lockjaw, uh, mm. he kind of blows it all off in here. I think... It, I think it would do real psychological damage to a person to uh, keep dying in horrible ways. Um, you know, so oh, yeah. I didn't feel an emotional connection with the story, but I thought it was interesting. I, I, I felt one right at the end when he, the, the way the story ends and the way Ju- Julie reads it, I say, oh, it's the end. And he's, he's just like, they're all dead and the world lays before me. 
<laughs> like, oh, no. Well, but then I thought, oh, he's going to be the next Moreau. He's going to he's going <laughs> to keep on because he's going to keep on with the the uh, experiments or something. Right. You know, there's a possibility there because he did like that. Yeah, he defeated him using the science. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he he has it mastered. Yeah. Hmm. I think he said he got interested in the experiments anyway. Even absolutely though he was a victim of it. Yeah, he just he wasn't interested in being the subject. <laughs> <laughs> On the other hand, he's such a dilettante and a wastrel. What's the odds he's actually going to carry it through after that? Yeah, well, I would he take was work. a dilettante. <laughs> yeah, well, I think he's, he's matured since then, right? And well, he, he's died a few times. <laughs> yeah, he, he jumped off a boat just to get away from it. I'm not sure that's maturity. <laughs> uh, if if you don't talk about it in terms of a Freudian story, um, the other thing that came to mind was it's the prodigal son. You know the the biblical. This is I, I wanted to get Eric in on this just because I, I think he would have had a lot of Freudian sort of stuff to say that I, I'm no good at. But I, I was thinking the prodigal son. You know, you've got this character. Uh, uh, who leaves the home um, because he's he's wasting all the money, um, and when he's he's returns home, he's greeted with love and respect. <laughs> uh, and uh, not this is an inversion of that, right? He says, "I." He comes home and he says, ah, "It's me, Dad. You know, I made something of myself. Oh, I'll make something of you." <laughs> <laughs> but you certainly can't go home again. <laughs> In a way, the, the the description of the relationship that he has with his father in between being held mm. is actually sounds better than his previous relationship oh, yes. with him. It was like, oh yeah, between killing him, he showed me all his science, and we hung out, and we went fishing, they bonded. And we, told, and we threw a ball around the yard. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't quite go that far, but they certainly have a collegial respect for the the works that they are able to do. So maybe it's a parable for the links that which adult children will go to to get the respect of their parents. <laughs> when they don't get it, watch out. Watch out. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure it's a it's a super classic of uh, science fiction, but I just think it's really cool that it is a science fiction story and so early and talking about yeah disintegration rays and and and. And suspended animation. I mean, it's it's a time travel story too. It's got he he he's been away for a couple of weeks, and he's like, "What? Where did those buns go?" <laughs> Just unusual. Mm. Fun to discover these things. It's any, also always uh, interesting. Any further to, thoughts? Sorry. sorry. Go for it's it. also always interesting to look at an author's earliest work and see where the influences come from. I mean, if you look at early Stephen King or Ramsey Campbell, they're they're riffing on Lovecraft really, really hard. Hmm. And so you look at this and it sounds like, you know, he's riffing on Wells or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone's influenced by something or they wouldn't get into writing. Hmm. Sounds right. Or Lovecraft. Yeah, Lovecraft yeah. is it's it, it's 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 re it it is very much like Reanimator and I'm not sure that Lovecraft read Reanimator as much as uh, sorry read this story as much as he just read Frankenstein, uh, but he wasn't also very proud of that story. I think. Also, Lovecraft was after like... London. Sorry. Okay. okay. I was gonna say this is a Lovecraft, Lovecraft like what? He must have. He was after Jack London. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. a little bit yeah. Mm-hmm. I, they're sort of uh, passing the baton because I think uh, London died in 1916. 
and uh, that's about the time when Lovecraft starts taking up, taking off. There is a there is a sort of a you know you could just pick, keep picking up the new good authors uh, and just read them until they die and find out who, <laughs> who takes over. Uh, it goes you know Poe, uh, and then I guess there's a few guys like Fitz James O'Brien. And, uh, Dunsany, Hodgson, Beers. Yeah, or you, you could do it like if you if you jump across uh, the pond as well, uh, back and forth. You can you can definitely do it. But I, I'm just thinking, like even within the United States, there's there's a a chain of of authorship that is definitely doing something genre before there was the genre. Hmm. So, uh, Matt, you seem to write stories based on uh, everything that inspires you. You're always writing. Uh, what are you going to write when, after this, having read this story? Oh, does this inspire me to something? Yeah. Mm, nah. Not really. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I, uh, for, the, for the mango, I, I just go a little bit insane. And, um, yeah, yeah. A gonzo, I think is the... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. The... Um, the where does it come one, from? Huh? Where does where did your ideas come from? Uh, I don't know. I just just anything. It, here's the thing: um, people think they're not creative, but they are. It's just that they throw away all the nutty ideas that I would pick up. You know, like I um, I just finished writing an episode last night about. Um, a lady who designs a new iPhone app that lets you defecate into your iPhone, and it's called "There's a Crap for That." Okay, if 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 you it's had an pun. idea, Hi-oh. if you had an idea like that, you would probably dispose of it immediately, and I wouldn't. That's the difference. It's gold. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't be surprised if there is an app for that. <laughs> Uh, it probably it probably doesn't actually involve uh, interfacing with the phone, but it's probably like wayyourcrap.com or something. <laughs> Some sort of. Oh, take a photo of it and have it analyzed by. That's right. Phone. Well, there there is a website like that. Oh, nice. It's I I forget what it's called. Yeah. It's something like uh, I don't know. Pic- picture my poo or something like that. I forget what it is, but <laughs> any vile thing you can think of, it's out there. Hmm. <sighs> I really brought down this show. Sorry. (laughs) I'll be sure to add that to the notes. (laughs) He brought Um, down the show. I was I was going to mention the movie Flatliners. Kind of remind. Yeah, yeah. I thought of that too. Mm -hmm. That the the way that one goes though, it 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 takes it in a different direction. It it is about sort of you know dying, and and seeing what's 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 life is like when you're not alive <laughs> right and, and being able to pull them back mm-hmm. most and I, wrong. I quite liked that movie at the time i i haven't seen it since but yeah me too yeah it's uh it is there is something about you know the mystery of death uh the mystery is uh why don't people come back and tell us what it's like huh they do and well they, and in the, around 1900 was a huge I mean, the, the spiritist movement was huge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, everybody wanted to talk to the dead. Everybody was trying to, you know, get a messages from beyond. Though, in, in, interestingly enough, this story takes it in a strictly materialistic view. It doesn't deal with the spiritual aspects of dying at all. 
it deals strictly with the I died, I woke up, I died, I woke up. It's not I died. Oh, look, I was seeing the pearly gates. Oh, I woke up. There's a tiny bit. Right at the beginning, he talks about being in the sea and dying and what it's like. And then he wakes up on the ship. But it's unclear whether, you know, his being revived is part of that being dead. Uh, And, of course, there are the times when he talks about being aware while Mm. he's dead. Yeah. You know, which suggests that his his yeah. vision of the afterlife is uh pretty claustrophobic. Yeah, we don't we, we go on whether we're alive we're or not. In our bodies. Yeah, kind of a ghost thing, but um if you are disintegrated, uh this yeah, where's your where's your ghost go? You go directly to jail, do not pass go, <laughs> do not collect two hundred dollars. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and this is father proud of him now that he's been disintegrated. Hmm. Oh, look what my boy invented. Mm. He is a man. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so, let's... Uh, any any last thoughts? None for me. Nope. 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 Well, talk, talking about riffing on other people's you know, stories and stuff, I mean, I can't really fault him for that because I do that all the time. <laughs> No, no, that's what everybody does, I think, right? Yeah, yeah it's, 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 you know, it's not plagiarism, he's just uh, using ideas. Yeah, you know, you go, oh, that would be interesting, but they did it really crappily, I'm going to do it better. <laughs> or, or, don't you see, it makes more sense if blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But now these days you have to worry about patents and everything. Someone's <laughs> suing you. Right, you know, patenting the, the story technique of... Uh, uh, rising action, falling action, climbing, <laughs> you know, all that horrible stuff. I, I think that's been around since the Greeks. I think that's pretty much public domain. As long as you don't use the word Olympics. Because oh. <laughs> Olympics is trademarked, apparently. Nice. You can use the word Olympics if you're mentioning the Olympics. You just can't use it to to sell your product. Hmm. Presumably. Yeah. Or you can On the other hand, or like Olympics. No, <laughs> no, they get upset about that. On the other hand, he with the most money wins. So, right. Oh well. Oh uh, well. Uh, Julie's going to start a uh, copyright uh, patent uh, podcast. <laughs> no, I mean we. Uh, I work at an intellectual property law firm, but uh, <laughs> we don't do a lot of copyright. I mean, we do some. But it's not the major portion of what we do. What is so it? Tra- tra- trademarks, then? Uh, patents and trademarks. Oh. And uh, I like it. That's why I like it because it's interesting, and I'm always seeing new inventions. And you know, that when, as I'm proofreading patents and stuff, and a lot of them are very dull, like you know, the gel that goes into diapers so that they absorb more. Or, <laughs> but the first thing that I proofread when I first was hired on years ago was a shotgun shell powered battering ram for breaking open doors in narrow hallways. And I was like, that rocked. <laughs> Are you working on your own theory of relativity while you work in this patent office? Nah, it's been done. Why bother? <laughs> I just write stories in my head in between things and put them down on paper and. Oh my gosh, that drives me crazy enough. <laughs> oh, getting, uh, getting my stories out is so much work. Yeah, yeah, you do a ton of work. I, I, I Matt, you read your stories, right? Right. She she writes them 
and then she casts them and then mixes them. She's and she's doing it all on a laptop. It's insane. Yeah. I'm fully dramatized audio dramas. I don't understand. I don't understand how you you can do that and have a regular day job, and a cat. Oh, like the cat just reminds me when I it's gonna starve to death. It's good, as opposed to a goldfish, which would just starve to death because I'd forget about it. The cats remind you. That's true. <laughs> Julie, so, thanks for reading this story. Yeah, yeah, well, thanks. I, yeah, I like thank the challenge of being able to do a character that's, you know, drastically different than I am. I mean, oh, I really? I thought it was, was a very like good three, no. <laughs> I was actually like three paragraphs in before I realized that it was British and I started over. <laughs> <laughs> there are things when you're, you know, doing your first skim through that you just don't notice. And then you're like, oh, that's better than uh, I did a novel one time for somebody. I don't think it ever actually came out, but I got paid, so it's okay. But I was two chapters in before it bothered to mention that the character was southern oh <laughs> and i'm like well crap <laughs> yeah, i think jonathan davis mentioned something like that too yeah yeah we talked about that in a recent podcast he's he talks about how you know if it doesn't mention early on what uh, what the how the character speaks he, they often have trouble yeah That's well their- it's when you're writing as a dramatist you know, one of the rules of thumb is don't surprise the actors. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if there's something they need to know, tell them up front. You know, even if even if it's something like your character's possessed by a ghost, you know, and the story they don't find out two-thirds till two-thirds of the way through, the actor needs to know early or else it's not going to be in their performance. You know, you may be surprising the audience, but the actor is on your side. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com.